0: of why they display their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Edmund Kemper. Edmund Kemper was born on December eighteenth, 1948, making him a Sagittarius in Burbank, California. Now, there have been so many serial killers born toward the end of and not long after World War II that it blows my mind, and a fair amount of you have specifically asked me to address this. So, of course I will in the future. But for now, let's skip the history of the world during this time. We've gone over it several times, not to mention we are going to talk about THE Edmund Kemper. This podcast will probably be one of the longest, if not the longest, I've done since I started. So let's just begin. Now, it is hard for me to accurately express just how important Edmund is to me. That's not to say that I agree with the things that he did, because I most certainly do not. But long before the Netflix show Mindhunters, I mean years and years ago, when I learned about Edmund, his story struck a chord with me in a way that all of you will learn the specifics about soon enough. Edmund was the third to be given that name. So let's go back into his family history, starting with his paternal grandparents. Edmund Sr. was born in 1892 in Mount Vernon, Indiana maude matilda huey was born in 1897 in topeka kansas now i couldn't find out how they actually met but they did marry in los angeles california in 1914 when edmund senior was 22 years old and maude was 17 which was perfectly typical for those times maude was a painter and you can actually find pictures of her paintings online if you want to search. There was definitely talent there. She signed her paintings, Huey Kemper. She also wrote children's books as well. She was described as highly intelligent, with a strong mind and personality to boot. She did not suffer fools lightly, as the saying goes. Our Edmund described her as domineering, being overly critical of her rather handsome husband, if you Google the pictures, she ruled the home, to say the least. The couple had three boys, including Edmund Kemper Jr., who was born in 1919. Edmund Jr. and his brothers were ruled over by their mother, Maude, and when Edmund Jr. was 20 years old, And standing at an impressive six feet, seven inches tall, he enlisted in the army in 1939, was happy to get away from home, and he served in World War II during his enlistment. Clarnell Stage was born in 1921 in Montana. Now, our Edmunds stated that Clarnell's mother was domineering, like his father's mother but that her mother had died before our Edmund was even born. Clarnell's father was described as meek and quiet, letting his wife control the entire relationship. Clarnell also had an older brother and a sister, but I don't know if her sister was older or younger than her. But interesting side story. Her brother Rex, also a rather handsome young man, by the way, was a second lieutenant in the Air Force and stationed in the panhandle of Texas. So one day when he was flying a B-17 bomber, out of nowhere he just decided to fly extremely low to a highway and the landing gear struck the top of a bus that was carrying 28 passengers. And while there were no injuries, he was of course reprimanded. And at his trial, they asked him why he had done that. And he said he was, quote, prompted by an irrepressible desire to experience the behavior of a B-17 at an extremely low altitude, unquote, but stated he did not intentionally hit the bus. I mean, he was, of course, found guilty, kicked out of the army. But it's interesting. And get this. President Roosevelt himself confirmed that Rex had been court-martialed. There were newspaper clippings that I found. So a little interesting tidbit of information. Now, Clarnell herself was a pretty young lady and quite tall at six feet. And according to her high school photo in either a yearbook or a possible school newspaper, she wanted to be a secretary when she grew up and her favorite class was typing. She was in band, in the Sculptors Club, Young Authors Club, was on the Junior Prom Committee, as well as Quill and Scroll Club, which sounds fascinating to me. So she was quite active during her school days. She was also headstrong, independent, and a highly intelligent young lady. So Edmund Jr., being in the service, was briefly stationed at Fort William Harry Henderson, which was just outside of Helena, Montana, where Clarnell worked as a secretary. The base he was working at was training soldiers to be a specific kind of soldier that was willing to go on these suicide missions, meaning they discouraged the men from being or getting married. But when Edmund Jr. and Clarnell met the attraction was strong and they quietly got married on november 26, 1942, in great falls, montana the couple had their first daughter in 1943 while edmund junior was still serving his country and working with the government testing atomic bombs in the pacific proving grounds but once the war was over He took his wife and his daughter and he moved to Burbank, California, which is a city north and a bit west of Los Angeles, but still very much part of that whole area. Edmund Jr. found work as an electrician and provided a pretty comfortable living for his wife and daughter. Edmund III was born in 1948, weighing 13 pounds. So, from now on, to try to save some confusion, I will refer to our Edmund as simply Ed, which is what he does go by. Ed's mother was constantly complaining to her husband about his menial job as an electrician that she had expected better. She emasculated him and belittled him regularly. And two years after Ed was born, his little sister was born. By the time Ed was four years old, he was already a head taller than his peers. But it's no wonder as both of his parents were exceptionally tall themselves. His parents' fighting continued to escalate. Many sources described it as stormy, but I don't really think that word quite encompasses it. And when his mother was done with his father, she turned her attentions to Ed and became quite overly critical of him. She called him stupid and slow. And he believed it. He stated that she belittled and picked at him and talked mean to him from the moment he got up until the moment he went to bed. So naturally, he had a closer bond with his father who treated him really well. While in kindergarten, he acted out and got into trouble some, no doubt, from the palpable tension in his home and how his mother talked to him. Ed's father once said, quote, suicide missions in wartime and the later atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell, unquote, and that she affected him as a grown man more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front line. Wow. So when Ed was eight years old, his parents separated, later divorcing, and Clarnell took the children and moved back to Montana. Ed was completely devastated. He didn't want to move away from the home he had known, away from the father that was good to him, that attempted to protect him from his mother, from his school, his friends. He especially did not want to go to Montana and live with her. At this point, Clarnell was drinking heavily and the verbal abuse escalated. Ed later stated that she used to smack him in the head frequently or take physical punishments entirely too far. And little Ed was becoming angry. So, he would escape this stress by becoming interested in things that scared him, and fantasizing about, quote, hatred because he had no outlet. He developed fantasies about being the last person alive on earth, and in fact, he told a story that once in school, his teacher talked to the class about being the last person alive on earth, and how lonely children would feel, but... Ed thought that it was an interesting idea, and that became the seed. I mean, every living soul gone, no restrictions, no being yelled at or disciplined. And then those fantasies built into people being inanimate, and how they couldn't hurt or affect him. Then it went further and further, and at one point, he had made the statement to his sister who had been kind of teasing him about a teacher that he liked, that he'd have to kill that teacher to kiss her. And of course, the experts just love to go over that and, you know, make a lot of assumptions. But what he meant was that she would have to be an inanimate person and therefore wouldn't react to him kissing her, if that makes sense. He wouldn't have to worry about her reaction, good or bad. So the house that they lived in had a basement, but it had no windows, and Ed was terrified of the dark. And when it was time to go to bed, he watched his mother and his sisters go upstairs while he was forced to go downstairs into that dark basement. He developed rituals to try to cope with his fears. So picture this in your mind. There were two lights So once he got down to the bottom of the steps, he would have to reach out into the dark and pull that string so that the light would come on, but it would only illuminate a portion of the basement. So he would look in all directions, terrified of what he couldn't see, then walk or run the whole expanse of the basement to where his bed was, reach out into the darkness again, desperately grasping for that string for the light there. When his hand met the string, he'd quickly pull it and that light would come on. But he knew he had to go back and turn the first light off or his mother would tear into him. So he would have to go back, turn it off, and then run and go to bed. And as he lay there trying to choke down his fear, he listened to the, you know, popping and hissing of the gas stove and thought about that fact. To him, his sisters and his mother simply went up to heaven to sleep. To him, the main floor represented the earth and, well, he was being sent to hell. When he would cry and tell his mother that he was scared, she would smack him in the head and tell him to be quiet. Stop being scared. So his mind began to fracture ever so slightly He later said he remembers wanting to kill her at that point. So to try to cope with his declining mental health, he developed games to play with his younger sister and sometimes a friend that would come over to play as well. A couple of the games included rolling each other up in a rug and seeing who could escape the fastest. And another game was tying each other to a chair and making it seem like it was an electric chair after the kids had watched a news program about criminals being executed by electric chair. Ed also tells a story about how he was allowed to go visit his father in California once, and while he was there, his father had bought him a toy handgun. It had not been cheap, and Ed treasured it. His younger sister had actually not been permitted to join Ed on this particular visit, and she was jealous when he got home, which is normal. So after Ed got back home, his sister was being sort of demanding of his attention, and Ed was playing with that new gun. His sister grabbed it out of his hand and just chucked it across the room. And when Ed went to go pick it up, he realized it was broken. He said the mechanism inside was broken and it just wasn't repairable. He was furious, of course, so he stomped into her room. He grabbed her most prized possession, which was a Barbie. He pulled the head off and he cut the hands off. He handed it to her and he said, quote, there, now your toy doesn't work too good, unquote. But it is important to note that Ed himself doesn't think this particular incident is a puzzle piece that fits into the picture that made him a serial killer. Again, experts just love to glorify this particular story, but Ed believes that this was just intense sibling rivalry that is actually really common. If a sibling breaks a beloved toy, the other one will break one of theirs, I mean that's just simple. And as life was going on, his mother was still regularly smacking him around and constantly talked about how horrible men were right in front of him. Ed stated that when she, quote, beat the hell out of him, unquote, she'd also demand that he stop crying out in pain because she was afraid that the neighbors would think she was beating him, of all things. He'd walk around with these big red whelps on him. I mean, basically, he just did not fit the mold of the child she wanted, and she tried to force him into it. But that's not to say that he didn't know something inside of him was unraveling and coming apart. At 10 years old, Ed buried the family cat alive. Once he knew it was dead, he exhumed it, decapitated it, and put its head on a stick. His mother moved him and his sisters again to a new place in Montana, thus having to start completely over at a new school again. He hadn't even been great at making friends before, but this move ensured that he wouldn't now. The other boys bullied him, and he was fearful of getting into physical fights with them, although he was so much bigger than they were. It is likely the boys picked on him because he was such a tall kid, but regardless, the stress of this and his mother's constant picking at him and hitting him was becoming more than he could handle. So his mother remarried quickly, but would then turn and get divorced soon after. Ed stated that he would sit and watch his mother, quote, field strip grown men in these intense emotional contests. And when they would become so angry that it was just obvious they were trying to restrain themselves, she would berate them with taunts of smacking women around. And Ed would watch these men get seriously angry, punching walls and whatnot, stomping around. And this is how she treated men. Got your happy price, price line. She had done this to Ed's father, and she regularly practiced this on her own son. But Ed himself said that he would watch her do this, and he would be both horrified and fascinated simultaneously. When he was 13 years old, Clarnell complained about what a horrible kid he was. And telling him that she was forced to lock him in the basement to keep him from raping his sisters. Although that would have never happened. And she decided she was giving up. She was going to send him to visit his father in Los Angeles. But he was thrilled to go. He hated Montana and desperately wanted to be away from his mother. While he was there... He and his stepbrother, as his father had already remarried, they hung out together and they managed to get along fairly well at this point in time. Ed stated that his father treated him good, you know, like a little man, the way his father wished that he had been treated by his own mother, Maude. Ed felt like he could relax a bit and that maybe he wasn't such an awkward youth, but like all things... That came to an end. He was gone for one month, and when he got back, his mother immediately picked up on the fact that he was happier for being there with his dad. She quickly fell back into her mind games, and one such game would be to make strange threats, like saying she was going to beat his ass after he finished his dinner, so he'd be forced to sit there and think and stress about it. And at this point, he was growing so rapidly. His mother used to use that as ammunition as well, calling him a freak. And by the time he was 14 years old, he was already well over six feet tall. He was having disturbing and dark fantasies about death. He continued to kill small animals to try to deal with his mental torment and stress. Ed thought so little of himself that he would play games like lying in the middle of the street, waiting for a car to run him over, which of course never happened. He said every time he did this, the person driving the car would immediately stop and they would get out, you know, very worried about why he was laying there. But he would just stand up and run away. Finally, his mother sent him to live with his father, much to Ed's delight, He was thrilled to get away from her. As he started at yet another new school, he fell into his old habits. He always thought that he was dumb because he was called stupid and slow his whole life. He had no faith in himself, and he stated that he was actually not even a thinker, that he existed on autopilot until an art teacher in the ninth grade took an interest in him and decided to pull the guarded and withdrawn teen out of his shell. The teacher forced him to come out of his mind and actually pay full attention. He gave him puzzles to think about and resolve during class. But at home, he was arguing with his stepbrother and his stepmom. His father had a new family now, and Ed felt like it was a competition to get his father's attention. For the holidays, Ed's father and the family took a trip up to visit Ed's grandparents. Now, Maud and Edmund Sr. lived on an isolated farm in North Fork, California. At that time, Maud, then 66 years old, was writing children's stories as well as still painting, and she would often paint outside, enjoying the serene views surrounding her farm. She appreciated this isolation that let her work in peace without disturbance. So they went to visit the grandparents, but once Christmas was over, Ed was told by his father that he was going to be staying with his grandparents, that he would not be returning home with his father. Ed stated that he felt like his father abandoned him and it affected him deeply. Now, Maud noticed that her grandson was sullen and she also knew how much he wanted to go back to live with his father. So she told him that if he ever wanted that to happen, he had better do what she said. Ed stated that, you know, at first things were okay, things were calm After all, he wasn't in Montana with his mother and so forth. But as the months went on, his grandmother's decision to try to help him by completely smothering him with psychological discipline was having a hugely negative effect. He had escaped his overbearing mother just to be forced to live with another woman who was nearly as bad. She would not let him out of her sight, even to hang out with kids his own age. No socialization with his own peers. He was not even allowed to leave the property. Maud would notice him staring off into space, lost in his thoughts, and it would make her angry, and she would accuse him of doing it on purpose to scare her. The tension built and built, and the fantasies he had had about killing his mother now changed and morphed over to his grandmother. Fifteen-year-old Ed could feel himself get to that breaking point. On August twenty-seventh, 1964, while his grandmother sat at a table writing, he grabbed his rifle and he shot her in the back of the head. She was, of course, dead instantly, but he shot her two more times in the back. He then wrapped her head in a towel and dragged her body into her bedroom. Not long after, his grandfather returned to the farm with the groceries that he had bought. He got out of his truck, he went to the back to begin unloading the bags, and Ed shot him in the back of the head. Ed describes that exact moment like this. He said that on top of that mountain, he felt everyone in the world... In that instant, turning and looking at him, like all eyes of the whole world, turning, looking at him and what he had done, he was paranoid, he was scared and violent. He described himself as a rabbit, cornered with nowhere to go. Ed told an interviewer once that if that house had been in town, he would have been a mass murderer in just that moment. But when he finally calmed down a bit and fully realized what he had done, he called his mother in Montana to tell her what he had done. She told him to call the local sheriff's department. Now, I wish I could have heard this actual telephone call to see what her reaction was. But regardless, they came and took him in and questioned him, and he immediately confessed to the murders. He told them about his grandmother and how he had begun to have thoughts of killing her a lot recently, but that killing his grandfather had been an act of mercy, that he didn't want him to have the pain of knowing his grandson had killed his wife. So Ed was kept in the local jail while he was being assessed, and a court-appointed psychiatrist diagnosed him with paranoid psychopathy, and the youth authority committed him to Atascadero State Hospital. Now, from the beginning, they were impressed with this teen, who was eager to participate. He happily submitted himself to the battery of tests they conducted on him, and he found out that his IQ was 145, the same as Thomas Edison, Richard Nixon, Warren Buffett, Barack Obama, Jim Morrison, and... Jeffrey Dahmer. Ed hadn't even realized just how incredibly intelligent he truly was until he was in that hospital. The doctors and the staff were so impressed with him that they allowed him to help them administer tests to some of the other patients. Now wrap your mind around that. Take a moment. What an incredible education he got in what kinds of questions were on these tests, what answers or combination of answers the doctors were looking for, and how to interpret that data. He learned quickly exactly what they were looking for in his behavior and mental health. Ed also had time to get to know other patients that were there because some of them were dangerous, such as rapists, regaled their tales of what it was like to rape a woman and the high they got from the control. Now, being that Ed was getting into his mid to later teens at this point, he was becoming very sexually aware. These stories left an impression on his rapidly maturing mind. And he was also growing taller still, finally reaching a whopping six foot nine inches or 2.06 meters tall. He kept himself up. He was clean cut, displayed conservative views, he was highly, I mean, extremely intelligent, but very sheltered. Once the hospital decided he was, quote, well, they discharged him at 21 years old in 1969. So, that was Edmund's childhood. There is so much to work with here that the only place to start really is at the beginning. Now, we've spoken before about whether or not mental illness can be inherited. The National Institutes of Health state that a new study shows major mental disorders, once thought to be distinct, actually share genetic glitches. Now, Science has known for a long time that a lot of mental health issues seem to run in families, which points at a possible inherited gene or genes. Usually, if a mental disorder were to be inherited, it would generally be the same mental disorder the previous member of the family had. Also, as you probably already know, I am a huge fan of Dr. Jim Fallon and his work. And if you are really interested in the in-depth studies of brain differences in psychopaths, I highly recommend him. But one thing he talks about is the major violence genes, and importantly, a variant of these genes that is in a percentage of the human population. It resides on the X chromosome meaning it is only inherited from the mother. That's right, the mother. Daughters will have the XX chromosome, so they'll have the extra X to sort of dilute that violent X, if you will. But for boys, the other is a Y chromosome. So this is why most serial killers are male. Now, we'll come back to this later. Ed was born to a mother who was a highly intelligent and motivated woman, but used negative and aggressive behaviors to assert her dominance and control. It must have worked during her life because she used it quite successfully until Ed's father had had enough and the marriage ended. Ed himself stated more than once That she asserted her dominance through very passive-aggressive, as well as physically aggressive behaviors at him from as far back as he could remember. So children get their personal self-esteem, their sense of self-worth, and who we really are through our caregivers, most usually our parents. The old saying, nature versus nurture, is valid in that some of our personalities and things that make us individuals come from the genes we inherited from our family, but the nurture aspect is so very important. How a child is treated and disciplined and loved on can mold what is already naturally there in many different forms or directions. Ed's mother seemed to delight in belittling her son, making him feel worthless, unloved, and empty. Belittling a child can make that child feel extremely lonely, and they withdraw into their own despair. Belittling often is just the symptom of full psychological and emotional abuse, which includes, so here's the checklist, humiliating or constantly criticizing a child, Threatening, shouting at a child or calling them names, making the child the subject of jokes or using sarcasm to hurt a child, blaming and scapegoating, not recognizing a child's own individuality or trying to control their lives, pushing a child too hard or not recognizing their limitations, Exposing a child to upsetting events or situations like domestic abuse or drug taking or alcohol. Failing to promote a child's social development. Not allowing them to have friends. Persistently ignoring them. Being absent. Manipulating a child. Never saying anything kind, expressing positive feelings, or congratulating a child on successes and never showing any emotions in interactions with a child, also known as emotional neglect. So which one of those can we say Clarnell didn't do to Ed? Correct, she ticks every single box. So, that naturally leads us to children who are being emotionally abused displaying a seemingly unconfident or lack of self-assurance. They struggle to control their emotions. They have difficulty making or maintaining relationships, and they act in a way that's highly inappropriate for their age. Now, did Ed display any of these behaviors? Yes, he most certainly did. So then when we throw in the physical abuse he endured from his mother and... I mean, well, we know what the outcome was. Then we have his experiences in the basement. His analogy of him having to go down to hell while his mother and sisters went up to heaven is actually an excellent way to view it. As if the emotional and physical abuse weren't enough, she then completely cut him off from his family and forced him to sleep down there, knowing he was terrified. And her response to him, telling her how terrified he was, was to literally hit him and tell him to just quit being scared. Even though the thought never crossed his mind, she told him the reason he had to sleep down there was because she was afraid he was going to rape his sisters. Now, to this day, he talks about how completely ridiculous that was. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again it is not my place to really officially diagnose anyone with anything. I can only give my opinion based on the information available and with that, I feel that Clarnell was at the very least a narcissist and here's why. Narcissistic parents make a concerted effort to put their child down to make themselves feel superior and killing the child's self-esteem people close to a narcissist are generally not even treated like human beings the narcissist is very manipulative they love a good guilt trip the blame and shame and most upsetting the receipt of love is entirely based on conditions which is unacceptable parenting and one of the worst traits is a lack of empathy and children subjected to this kind of parenting will usually display one of the three coping mechanisms, fight, flight, or freeze. And it would seem that, based on my own observations, that throughout Ed's childhood, he was permanently stuck in the, quote, freeze And when he was finally able to escape his mother and live with his father, he felt he was in constant competition with his father's new wife and children. So in a sense, he felt rejected by his father who then promptly abandoned him with his grandparents, and namely Maud, his grandmother whose personality might not have been as negative as Clarnell's, that I think anyway, but still a very strong and domineering personality nonetheless. Clarnell and Maud both had issues with feeling like they had to constantly be in control. Now, I don't think any one of us are confused as to why Ed eventually snapped. Not being able to handle his hypercritical mother or cope with the stress and tension, he took his frustrations and violent fantasies out on small animals. He fantasized about violence and people being inanimate objects so that he would not have to deal with their reactions. Since most of what he experienced was completely negative. So with all of these ingredients, it comes as no surprise that he did snap, that he had a break from reality. So getting back into his life story, Ed was released from the state hospital in 1969. And I am sure we are all quite familiar with what was going on in California and much of the country during that time. I mean, 1969 was a time of the hippies and the Hate ashbury and Charles Manson and all of that. So, Ed walked out at 21 years old with his perfect haircut. His hair wasn't long like everyone else's. His perfectly manicured mustache. His pressed clothing. His state-issued glasses looking like what they called back then a square. And the whole time he had been in Atascadero, they had told him that he needed to not have anything to do with his mother, that she had, as Ed put it, gotten her pound of flesh out of him. They pounded into his head that their relationship was toxic. He needed to go zero contact. Then, when it was time for him to leave, the Youth Authority paroled him to none other than Clarnell, but he also managed to get his records sealed. Ed said that it was all of four months after his release that he was back into the dark fantasy life in his mind. He tried to date But he'd been in a state hospital since he was 15 and he lacked the naturally progressing social skills to be successful with girls. His mother had already been through yet another husband and her drinking had increased while he was away. And it didn't take long for the arguing to resume. They often had verbal altercations loud enough for their neighbors to hear. Kemper later stated, My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things. I remember one roof raiser was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned. Unquote. Ed went about deciding on a career and thought about becoming a police officer at first, but apparently there's a height restriction and he was simply too tall, of all the things. He had begun going to a community college under the supervision of the youth authority and was doing quite well. He bought a motorcycle so that he could at least feel like a policeman. Now, his doctors reported that he was adjusting to life outside the hospital very well, and when his mother stated she was moving to Santa Cruz to start an administrative assistant job at the university there, the doctors advised him not to go with her, but the youth authority forced him to go. So after getting a good job, Working for the highway department, um, he was able to afford an apartment with a roommate. He began having drinks at a local bar where the police officers went and he chatted with them, just chummed it right up. They actually liked him and called him Big Ed. And riding his motorcycle around, he was actually hit by a car twice. The last time he walked away with a broken arm and was given a monetary settlement. With that money, he bought his white 1969 Ford Galaxy and found that he absolutely loved to just drive around. And while doing so, he also became very aware of how many girls were around hitchhiking. At first he thought it would be a great way to get to know people and be more comfortable with girls and he genuinely enjoyed picking them up and giving them a ride. No harm, no foul. But what he was also doing was watching their reactions to him and learning to mold and shape his behavior to make these girls trust him more. This, coupled with the still constant fighting with his mother, who called him or even showed up to his apartment just to fuss, well, the violence in his mind was becoming so overpowering that it threatened to spill out into his reality. He made the passenger side door of his car to where it couldn't be opened from the inside. He began stashing items inside of it, such as knives, guns trash bags and so forth storing most of it in the trunk but once everything was in order he was ready and he knew exactly what was about to happen now at this point i have to throw a disclaimer down because what he did was very very graphic and i've tried to change the language up some so that it's not quite so shocking but i still want to make sure that you understand this is about to get brutal Okay, so on May 7th, 1972, he was driving around Berkeley when he saw 18-year-old students, Marianne and Anita, hitchhiking. He pulled over, and they stated they needed to go to Stanford, so Ed agreed to take them. He drove for a bit, but decided on a remote area outside of the city, and the girls became frightened. His intention was just to rape them, but then he remembered that he had been taught at the hospital by the other criminals that it was best to not leave any witnesses. So he handcuffed Marianne, but then apologized for accidentally brushing his hand against one of her breasts. He then locked Anita in the trunk. He went back to the inside of the car. He stabbed and strangled Marianne. And once she was dead, he returned to the trunk and killed Anita in the same way. He then put Marianne's body in the trunk with Anita's, took them back to his apartment while his roommate wasn't home. He took the bodies inside, he photographed them naked, then proceeded to have sex with the corpses. Once he was finished, he then dismembered the girls Putting the pieces into trash bags, he then violated the severed heads, then disposed of everything near Loma Prieta Mountain. Four months later, Ed picked up 15-year-old Ico, who needed a ride to a dance studio because she had missed the bus. He again drove out into a secluded area and pulled a gun on the girl. But for whatever reason, he got out of the car and he managed to lock himself out. And yet, he also managed to talk this young girl into letting him back into the car. He then immediately strangled her until she was unconscious, but not dead. He raped her, then he killed her. He placed her body in the trunk. He stopped off at a bar to have a drink. Then he went back outside opened the trunk and apparently stood there admiring his kill like a real hunter would he then took her back to his apartment and did the same with her that he had done with the first two disposing of the bags containing her remains out into the wilderness on january seventh, 1973 ed and his mother had gotten into it badly that day as he had actually been forced to move back in with her So, he got in his car to go search for a victim. As he was driving around the college, he picked up 18-year-old Cynthia, drove to a secluded area, shot her, then took the body back to his and his mother's apartment where he stashed the corpse in his closet overnight. Once Clarnell left the next morning for work, he had sex with the corpse. He dismembered it in his mother's bathtub and got rid of the remains, save her head. He continued to, let's say, use the head for a few days before burying it in his mother's backyard, the face facing upward toward his mother's window. He would later say he did this because Clarnell always loved people to look up at her. Cynthia's remains, except for her head, would be found. And I want you to understand that Ed said the actual murdering of the girls was horrible for him. He struggled with knowing that they would suffer on any level for at least some small amount of time and he actually didn't want that. A lot like Jeffrey Dahmer, the actual murdering part was horrible for him. He was just trying to get to his intended result, which was to be able to own the body once she was dead. like he described it as evicting someone from their body so that he could use it. Nearly a month later, after yet another fantastically horrible argument with his mother, Ed went on the hunt. Now, the authorities had begun to actually warn people that there might be a serial killer on the loose, though that specific term was brand new and told people to either not hitchhike at all or at the very least to only get in with people that had a school parking sticker on their car. Well, guess what Ed had because his mother worked at a university. Now, he stated that if a girl got in with him and started talking about the murderer that was on the loose, you know, what did he look like? Why was he doing it? Well, she was completely safe getting a full free ride to wherever she wanted to go. He said he wouldn't touch that girl with a 10-foot pole that talked to him about him. But on February 5th, he picked up two girls, Rosalind and Allison. He then got them away from the public, shot both of them, and wrapped their bodies in blankets. He then did the exact same thing to them as he had all of his previous victims. Finally, Ed had had enough. He knew the murdering had to stop. He knew just who he was killing over and over, and he made the decision to destroy the root of his problems. On April thirtieth, 1973, Ed was sleeping when Clarnell got home from a party that she had attended, and she had been drinking. While lounging in bed reading a book, she happened to notice Ed standing in the doorway and she was instantly irritated. I mean, I can see it in my mind that she would just slap the book down on her side, roll her eyes at him. But she did say, quote, Oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up and talk all night now. Ed immediately told her, Nope. And he exited the room and waited for her to fall asleep. He was livid. He then got up, he picked up a claw hammer. He bludgeoned her to death. He then slit her throat. She had told him recently that she hadn't had sex with a man for years because of her murderous son. As if that is an appropriate topic to talk about with your child. So, he decapitated her. He humiliated her head in the worst way and said, quote, there. He then took out her vocal cords and ground them up in the garbage disposal in sort of an act of finally being able to shut her up. He played darts with her head that he placed on a shelf, then hid the remains in his closet. After leaving to have a few drinks later that day, he invited his mother's friend Sarah over for dinner in a movie with him and his mother. Sarah agreed, and after she showed up, Ed strangled her, decapitated her, and had sex with her body. He then stashed her body in the closet, and he wrote a note for the police, and fled. That note read, approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, Asleep the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. Ed then got into Sarah's car and drove straight to Pueblo, Colorado where he stopped, called the police, and confessed to his murders. He then patiently waited for the local police to find him at the payphone, pick him up, and send him back to California. And when they asked him why he had turned himself in, he described being done with it all, that his motivation after his mother's death was gone, and he was tired. You see, once he killed his mother, the overwhelming drive to murder kind of stopped. He gave a detailed confession and showed investigators where they could find the rest of the remains of his victims. Court-appointed psychiatrist deemed him sane. Ed said that he cannibalized the leg muscle of one of his victims while he was under the influence of a, quote, truth serum, but he has maintained all of these years that he actually did not eat any remains. On November 8, 1973, the jury found him guilty on all counts. He did ask for the death penalty, but by then, California had abolished that. And he has been in prison ever since, and as of this recording, is still very much alive to this day. He has always been a model prisoner. He skips parole hearings because he just doesn't want to leave prison. He has done some charity work, actually. He's recorded himself reading books to make audiobooks for the blind. And I actually wish I knew where I could find those audiobooks. I'd love to hear them. So if any of you know where I can find that, please let me know. He did have a stroke in 2015, which stopped him from a lot of his activities. And I don't actually know what his current health status is. He has agreed to many, many interviews over the years and has always been cooperative, upfront and honest about his crimes. I fully believe that if he had been able to get away from the domineering and cruel mother that he had at a very early age, he might not have committed these crimes. And remember when we talked about the X, the violent X chromosome well, I feel that he inherited that violent X, that violent gene on that X chromosome from his mother. And even though he did grotesque and disgusting things with the dead bodies of his victims, there is still a part of me that has a super soft spot for Ed. And I will address the reasons and much more in an upcoming video that I will make and put on my Patreon pretty soon. It's taking me a while to create it, but I will get it done. And in case you were curious, in the intro of my podcast, it is Ed saying, quote, I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. So when you have a child with what I think was a genetic propensity for mental illness, and you stick him with a person who raises him in the horribly abusive way that she did. Combined with the abandonment he felt from his father, well, it's no surprise that he did the things he did. And I truly wish that he hadn't, because... The murders aside, he is a fascinating person to listen to. Clearly, I mean, they used his character extensively in that Netflix show, Mindhunters. He is so highly intelligent, I just feel like he could have really done something with himself. But... What do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at Serial Underscore Killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com, always under construction, my apologies. And also consider sponsoring this podcast like Lori Nichols. Thanks, Lori. And if anyone else wants to become a supporter, I will shout you out too. Thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate each one of you as I know you could have listened to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin McCloud on Incompetech.com.